0: We're continuing Evangelism for the Faint-Hearted, and we've seen that evangelism is the uh, process of giving the the gospel. It's called evangelism because the evangel, that's the uh, Greek word from which we get good news or the, the gospel, euangelion, evangel. So an evangelist is someone who gives the gospel. Evangelism is the process of doing that. And we're looking at evangelism for the faint-hearted. Now, why faint-hearted? Well, because the good news has preceding it bad news. And because you need to give someone the bad news, it is not always, in fact, most of the time, not well-received. If God doesn't move on the heart of that person to open their heart to uh, the good news, then they're not going to receive the bad news well. And so uh, you can be, I can be, hesitant uh, to give the gospel because of the reaction we, we may well receive—ridicule, rejection, or, or even worse—and we're not alone. As we've seen, though, the great apostle Paul was hesitant. He had to have his courage bucked up when he went to Corinth. In Acts chapter 18, the Lord appeared to him, said, "Fear not." Paul requested prayer for his ministry that he would give the gospel uh, uh, fearlessly. He said, "As I as I should." So he was admitting. That there was that tendency to to hesitate and to have some fear about giving the gospel. So we're we're faint-hearted about it. And if we're honest, then uh, many of us have trouble consistently giving the gospel, in part because of that faint-heartedness. And that's why then I wanted to do a class on that to help us overcome uh, that that hesitation. And my tact in trying to help us to do that has been to show that the gospel is accomplishing God's work in his world to motivate us to be his instruments, his ambassadors in giving the gospel. That God's objective for everything he does is his glory. That is the display of his character. And since the entrance of sin into God's world, the mirrors that we were made to be in God's image to reflect him back to him so that we think and talk and act like he does, those mirrors have been marred, they've been cracked, they've been broken. So now God looks at us, looks at humanity, and he sees a distorted image of himself. The rep, the rep, repair for that distortion, those cracks, those breaks in the mirror, the fogginess that distorts the image, that's the gospel. The person and work of Jesus' is death, burial, and resurrection and the receipt of that receiving welcoming that that message is what begins the process of repairing the mirrors and we've seen that that's an ongoing process throughout our lives and then it will it will end uh at when we die or when the lord returns so that we'll be be glorified so one way to overcome the faint heartedness that all of us have the hesitation that all of us have is to remember uh, how important the gospel is. It is the means by which God is achieving his work in his world to restore people to his His image. But secondly, we spent uh, a few weeks looking at the beauty of the gospel also, looking at the multifaceted uh, aspects of the gospel. We looked at six in particular so that we would have a new appreciation, hopefully, for uh, what the gospel is, what the Gospel has done in our lives, and then in turn, what the gospel can do in the lives of others. And then again, hopefully that'll motivate us to overcome our faintheartedness. heartedness Last week, we started to look at on page 13, and in, in that had on page 13, uh, to whom are we giving the gospel? And the idea there with that question is knowing our audience, knowing the people that we're going to, uh, and what we already know about them, even before we're introduced to them, even before we start a conversation with them, there are some things we know about them that the Bible tells us. And in particular, in pages 13 through 16, we've looked at three things that the Bible tells us about everybody that we're going to talk to. The first is that they know God, that they know God that they know there is a God, that they know that God is, God has made that plain to them by creation, by instilling a conscience of right and wrong in every person, so that even though sin causes people to suppress that truth, to hold it down, they are without excuse before God because God has made himself known to them. They know God. But secondly, we saw last week, they don't want to know God. And so they, they hold it down. Uh, the Bible says in Romans chapter one, not only do they suppress it, hold it down, but it says in verse twenty-eight of Romans one, they did not like to want to retain the knowledge of God in their thinking. So I said in the notes, in your notes, that God is like repressed memories. Uh he's like uh he's like some traumatic event for people that they want to put put away and not and not think about. That's the relationship that the natural sinful person, that would be everybody, has with God according to the Bible. People know God. People don't want to know God. And then on page 13, we started to look at the fact that that means that people are, are fools. They're fools. And when we say that, that people are fools, that's not just a pejorative to, to be unkind. That's using the Bible's language. We saw that the Bible uses that language this way, that a fool... In the Bible, fool and, and foolishness is failing to apply what one knows. Wisdom, uh, as we saw last week and even on Sunday morning in James chapter 1, if anyone lacks wisdom, let him act, ask of God. And I defined wisdom at that time as the application of what you know. Well, the opposite of that is foolishness, failing to apply what you know. That's why then Psalm 14.1 says, The fool has said in his heart there is no God. Because he knows. He's failing to apply what he what he knows. And that's then what Romans chapter 1 says happens as people go their natural direction. They know God, but because of sin, they don't want to know God. And as a result of that, it renders them foolish. Verse 22 of Romans chapter 1 says, professing themselves to be wise, they became fools. So people live foolish lives all around us people are living foolish lives people are living lives that are not using what they know using what they're given for the purpose for which it was given they're using it for different purposes for different ends they're living foolish lives so on page 15 middle of page 15 that's where we left off that's who we're going to people who know God, people who don't want to know God and people who talk and speak and act foolishly. Now how does that foolishness manifest itself? Think about the things that God has given and the purpose for which he has given them. And then compare that to how the world uses those persons and things. So y'all see what I'm what I'm saying now. The people we're going to, the Bible says, are foolish. They're not using what they know for the purpose for which that knowledge was given. So what what's that look like? How do people misuse what they know, misuse what they've been given? And on page 13, here's an example. Why has God given us spouses? If you're married, he's given that to reflect him in the uniting of a man and a woman as one, thus mysteriously emulating the nature of God who is distinct persons and yet one God. Why has God given the relationship between a husband and a wife? The Bible uses this as an analogy for the church in Christ. The, the, The bride of Christ is the church. It's a beautiful picture. That's the purpose for which God gave marriage. But what will a fool do with that? A fool will use that for different purposes altogether. And so marriages are a wreck. It's because people are foolish. They don't use it for the purpose for which it was given. Or consider our physical bodies that God has given us. Think about the ways people abuse those bodies. In Romans 1, as you go further down in uh, the chapter in Romans 1, toward the end of that chapter, the bodies that God has given, it talks about how people misuse the bodies that God has given them in homosexuality and other perversions. These are misappropriations of what God has. Has made, and that's just uh, just a couple of examples. We'll come back to marriage and family and all of that uh, in later today, maybe if we get to it. But that's just a couple of examples. At the top of page sixteen, I say you can think of virtually anything that God has given, and you can also see ways in which people have foolishly misused those gifts. So I just encourage you to think about that. Think now about ways that people misuse what God has given. And that that list can be nearly infinite. Because everything that sinful people are given outside of Christ, they're using for different ends than God intended. Every last thing is being misappropriated, is being used foolishly. However, that misuse of God's gifts, the distortions of what he has made, offer opportunity for the good news. The foolish sin of the world is indeed bad news with devastating consequences, but it's those very problems that open the door for the solution. See, people can't live with the consequences of their own worldview. If you live consistently with a non-Christian worldview, you come up against it at some point and when you're in, particularly when you're in a, a culture that is sliding downward as a as a society like ours is and has been for several decades now now those consequences are going to become all the more stark all the more broad they're going to touch more and more people and one way to look at that is to despair and to say you know i remember when i was a kid what it was like and i longed for those days and You know, it's just so bad now. And that's true. We look at it with our eyes open, and it is true. Our kids are coming into a different world than we came into. On the other hand, uh, the thicker the darkness, the brighter the light. And I think that's the way we should look at it. You know, you look at, biblically, you look at cultures like the city of Corinth. You know, Paul was fearful to go into Corinth, the Lord told him to go in, as, I, as I've said. He did go in. He preached the gospel. The Lord said, I have people in this city. And God converted people there. A church was established there. But it was a church with a bunch of problems. 1 Corinthians is just a book about a bunch of problems this church this church had. But the church had problems. Why? Because it was bringing people into the church that were bringing all their baggage from the culture of Corinth. So if the church had those kind of problems, what do you think it was like in the city at large? Yikes. So you have examples of that 2,000 years ago. and We're living in a similar kind of time now. But the gospel had effect then, and the gospel is not chained, and God's power is not diminished in the gospel. And if anything, people come to the end of their road. They see the error of their way, and now God sometimes uses that to soften the mind and the heart of that person to be open to receive a solution to the mess that they've made of their lives third paragraph on page 16, the truth of the matter is people cannot live with the consequences of their foolishness. That's why C.S. Lewis said, quote, pain insists upon being attended to. God whispers to us in our pleasures. He speaks in our consciences, but shouts in our pains. It is his megaphone to rouse a deaf world. So the more people mess it up, the more God is using that to shout at people and say, you feeling that pain? How's that lifestyle working out for you? How's that going? And then you find people, lo and behold, saying, all right, so what's the solution? You know, I remember my grandma used to go to church. <laughs> Maybe I'll try one of those out. Maybe I and I get a mailer from some church, you know, tucked away in this subdivision. That says we're going to be talking about you've got questions and God has answers and and people show up. And by the way, they have been they have been showing up. So you we collectively as a church, we take advantage of that. People have these problems. We want to try to address them from a biblical standpoint. And so the problems can be indeed uh, opportunities middle of that paragraph people will abuse bodies with alcohol and all sorts of things they really can't live with that and god often uses it in the lives of these otherwise foolish people to get their attention to say in effect does that feel good how's it working out you all know that most of you know the story of the apostle paul and his conversion to christ and you know that he was a murderer and the people he was in particular murdering were christians And in fact, in Acts chapter nine, he was on his uh, he was on his way to kill some more Christians, and he's going to Damascus, and the Lord appears to him, and he has this spectacular conversion uh, for for Paul. But the Lord speaks to to him, and in recounting his conversion in Acts chapter twenty six, here's what the Bible says: When Jesus met Saul of Tarsus. Later referred to as Paul, in Acts 9, he was on the wrong road. He was going to kill Christians. But do you remember what Jesus said to Saul? He said, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? Now, now look at this. It is hard for you to kick against the goads. So, (laughs) this is my paraphrase. So, Paul, how's that working out for you? A goad is a prod, it's a stick with a sharp point on the end of it that was used to prod cattle along. And here Jesus is saying, Paul, you're living your life in a way that you're kicking against these sharp points. It's hurting you, isn't it? It doesn't feel good, does it? You're on the wrong road. And so that's what you've got going on with people. You got people who are doing that. You got people who are kicking against, kicking against. It's harming them, and when it hurts enough, people will cry out for cry out for help. So that's why you've got to have these uh, mirror repair stations around the world, otherwise known as churches. That's what we are. We're a mirror repair unit to repair the cracks. Rem- be God's instruments in removing the fog of those mirrors. It's why our church has, as part of its 10-year plan, to have a counseling center here to help people by bringing the gospel to bear on their problems. They're creating all kinds of problems for themselves. It gives us, then, an opportunity. Now, last paragraph on page 16, or, or Proverbs, I didn't mention Proverbs 13, you see it there. The way of transgressors is hard. So at some point, you come up against the wall, you come up against it, and at that point, often, people are more open than they have been while they were on that road. It may look from the outside that all the foolishness and revelry taking place on a typical Saturday night, that everybody's having a great time. But the truth is, inside God has set eternity in the hearts of people, Ecclesiastes 3, and they know something is missing, something is not right. So who are we going to with the gospel? We're going to people who know God, don't want to know God, and are foolish, but therein lies the entrance for the gospel because in the midst of the pain, the foolishness has created. In the midst of that difficulty, God, in his sovereign timing, sends us with a word of grace to that person, telling them that the God you've been running from is still chasing you with good news. So if you buy that, and you should, then that should help you, help me, to overcome our faint-heartedness. We've got the answer to what people need. And don't be fooled. By the way, it appears on the outside. Everybody's laughing and having a great time. A great time is being had by all. And the Bible says otherwise. There's actually a problem. There's an internal problem. We'll talk more about that beginning on page 17. So if you have that other handout, page 17. So we asked the question in the previous handout, pages 13 through 16, to whom are we giving the gospel? It's people who know God, don't want to know God, and therefore they are rendered foolish. Now we're seeking to answer the question, how do we relate? How do we relate then to the people who need our message? And this now begins to get us towards some, some practical ways in which we can uh, seek to see doors opened for communication of the gospel to people. How do we relate to people who are unbelievers, who are making a mess of their of their lives? Given that, presumably, if we are Christians, then we live different kinds of lives. So it would be very easy for there just to be these two parallel but non-overlapping worlds. There's our world and there's their world. And if there's just our world and their world, well then how does the communication of the gospel ever happen? It doesn't. But that's what it's easy to fall into. It's easy instead of this place being a mirror repair facility, This place can become a bunker unit. Man, it's a mess out there. There's a war out there. Those people are crazy. So glad I get to show up here on a Wednesday or on a Sunday with some sane people. Well, I I am too. And it is refreshing to be with God's people. And That's one of the means of grace that he gives us. But this is not intended to be a, a bunker. It's not intended to be a country club with only people who know the handshake can come into mirror repair facility hospital those are the kinds of things that we should think of when we think of think of the church how do we relate how do we keep it from being we're over here and you're over there top of page 17 in order to overcome our understandable Hesitance to give the gospel, we've explored the grand purpose for which God has given the gospel and all that undergirds it, namely to bring glory to himself. God is with the gospel repairing these broken mirrors of lives that fail to fulfill their purpose, of reflecting him back to him in their thinking, talking, and acting. So we should be motivated to overcome our faintheartedness because of the glorious purpose of the gospel. We should also be compelled to give the gospel because of its exquisite beauty. Like a diamond that looks different but spectacular from every angle, the gospel is multifaceted and fascinating. It delivers, rescues, saves us. As we saw over a few weeks, the persuasion, the power, the penalty, the position, the practice, and the presence of sin. And instead, it gives us a new perspective, a new heart, a new record, a new family, a new life, and a new home. All of that's on that chart back on page eleven. And both the purpose and beauty of the gospel should be sufficient motivation to face our fear and to proclaim it. But once we've overcome our psychological barrier to giving the gospel, our fears, we must still overcome the practical barrier that exists between ourselves and those who need our message. After all, the Bible describes a stark difference between believer and unbeliever. Light and darkness, sin and righteousness, the church and the world, and so on. So it would be easy to develop an us-versus-them mentality that communicates to unbelievers we don't like them. How do we traverse the chasm that exists between Christian and non-Christian in order to give the the good news? So we're going to look at that tonight and, and, and next week at least. Right now, just ask yourself, What do you think about non-Christian people? Do you like them? Do you love them? And you know, I'm afraid that the church is, with every passing week, getting cemented more and more into a reputation of people who don't like, let alone love, unbelievers. And brothers and sisters this is one of the reasons you've heard me comment a few times on the political environment. Because I'm afraid that's what's happening. Christians are getting identified with a particular a particular political approach. Sometimes a hateful approach. You get identified with that and now you want to go and say Jesus loves you. Good luck with that. You know, I care about politics. I like politics. I like following it, I should say. I care about it, and I care about it because it matters. But I care way more, way more, infinitely more about the Lord's church, about the gospel, and how the way we portray ourselves affects our credibility in giving that gospel. How are we coming off? That we love unbelievers? That we love people who aren't like us? Is that the way we're coming off? I'd be willing to wager, if I were a betting man, that if I were to interview every person here, every one of you would sincerely say, yes, I love unbelievers. And And I wouldn't doubt that you mean that. But I'm urging you and I'm urging us to be careful about attaching ourselves to people who are politicians who don't care about the church of Jesus, believe me. They care about evangelical votes. They don't care about evangelicals. And they don't care what they're saying or how incendiary it is and how it comes off as long as it works. And ignites the base and gets them out during the off-year elections in a couple weeks. we got to be smart enough to see that. And to not allow ourselves to get attached to that. You can support whoever you whoever you want. But understand that if you're going to vocally attach yourself to that, it's going to affect the credibility that you have to give the gospel that Jesus loves you. I'm just telling you that's why I care about it. And we need to care about it. We need to care about our credibility because otherwise we got these two worlds. There's us and there's you. And not only is there us and you, us has a a particular political party associated with it. So not only do you have to cross this great chasm to get from where you are to where we are, that includes... Getting it right politically so that when you walk through these doors of this place that's supposed to be this mirror repair facility, you got to be the right kind of mirror. I know it's broken and it's foggy and all that, but we want to make sure you got the right letter down at the bottom. Your mirror needs to have a little sticker on it. Nobody would say that. Nobody here would say that. It's just people come in and they catch that immediately. That's an exaggeration immediately, but they catch it. They hear it in the way we talk, in the things we're saying, and the way we're saying them. So how are we going to relate? Well, toward the bottom of page 17, I suggest that you and I see yourself in them. Now, I'm using us and them language but you understand how I mean it. We've benefited from the gospel. We want others to benefit from the gospel. So there are those of us who have benefited and those who have not yet. So I mean us and them in that sense. So see yourself in them. We should see in the non-Christian what we could and would be apart from the grace of God. Do you believe that? Do you believe that you could and you would be that person that you don't like and that person with that perversity and all of the stuff they're doing and are mired in, do you understand, dear friend, that biblically you could and would there ain't, forgive the grammar, there ain't nothing different about you and me. In terms of our sin nature, we're exactly the same. As that person who's just doing whatever they're doing, messing up their life, and in turn messing up our lives in some ways. One of the reasons we'll get to that we're ticked at them. They're encroaching on our turf. But that person who's out there doing that is is You is me. Biblically, they got the same nature. We all do the same sin nature. And what's the difference about how that sin nature manifests itself? A sovereign God determined that Ken Brown would be born into a home where he heard the gospel. A sovereign God did that. I didn't choose any of that. What if I wasn't? God could have chosen something else for me, couldn't He? And then I would have gone my natural sinful route. If God doesn't rescue me, I go my natural sinful route. And then a sovereign God puts people in circumstances and circumstances in an environment in which I'm nurtured around me. I could have grown up in the ghetto. What would I be like then? If I had to, and if I had to scrounge to just you know, get a new pair of shoes or whatever it is, might I be willing to steal something? Shoot somebody? Yeah. My sin nature means I'm perfectly capable of that. And yours too. Do you see, friends, when we look at people and we in our minds, if not in our words, are demeaning toward other people and where they are and what they're doing, we need to remember that apart from the grace of God, we could and would be doing that. If we were in the same circumstances, that's what we'd be doing. In keeping, then, with the ethic of the second great commandment, we should love our neighbor as ourselves. And so fulfill the golden rule in doing to others what you would have them do to you. All right, so if that's true, love your neighbor as yourself. And if these people are in these situations, then what does that mean? And how would I if I were in that situation? Since I love myself, how would I want people to treat me? And Jesus says do to others what you would want them to do to you. How would you want to be treated if you were in that situation? To be demeaned, belittled, cursed, laughed about. And Christian, professing Christian people do this. We're not going to be able to relate. We're not going to be able to go from here to there if that's the way we view people. And, f- and see, the hear, hear this. The way you view people starts with the way you view yourself. The way you view other people begins with how you view yourself. If you see yourself as a pretty much self-made man or woman, well then, okay. I made it, why can't you? What's your problem? Get off your duff and do something. Why are you so lazy? Why are you so, I'm so sick of these people coming to the trough. I'm paying taxes and you, okay, here we go, right? The Bible has a lot to say about laziness, about work ethic, all of that stuff. But without the grace of God, you don't have any of that. So if you see yourself, hey, I made it, you can too. Pulled myself up by my bootstraps. Friends, all of that is completely antithetical to the gospel. Rugged individualism, and I'm a self-made man or woman, is not the gospel. That's why one of the reasons I spent a bunch of time on Do we understand that God had to do all of these things in effectual call and regeneration and justification? God had to do all that stuff. Why? Because you were dead in your sins. But for many of us, yes, pastor, that's true. Yes, Ephesians chapter 2 and verse 1 is true. When you were dead in your trespasses and sins and we were all children by nature, children of wrath. Yes, I believe all of that. But in the recesses of our minds, somewhere in our hearts, we believe there's something in us that allowed us to do better than other people. And so how we view ourselves affects how we view others. But if you really see yourself as somebody who was indeed dead in trespasses and sins and had no hope, except the grace of God breathing life into you. If you really believe that, that's going to change the way you see other people. Bottom of page 17. We should have compassion on those outside of Christ, as did our Lord, of whom it was said, when he saw the crowds, he had compassion on them, Because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. And when was the last time you looked at people in the world and you felt genuine compassion because this person has no guidance? They're in darkness, they're blind and they're just tapping along and they don't know what they're doing. But that's the way Jesus saw Jesus' compassionate perspective resulted in a call to action. It's in that very context, the next verse. Then he said to his disciples, The harvest is plentiful, but the laborers or the workers are few. Ask the Lord of the harvest, therefore, to send out workers into his harvest field. You guys, many of you know that passage. It's a famous passage. You know, ask the Lord of the harvest. The, the harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Ask the Lord to send out labor. But what's the context of that? It's Jesus saying just before that, or Matthew saying of Jesus, that he has compassion on them. And because he has compassion on them, he is saying, therefore, people need to go out and give the gospel, which is the only solution to all of this. By the way, G- Jesus says, the, ask the Lord of the harvest. Now, notice what at the bottom of page 17, what you're asking the Lord of the harvest to do. It's send people out. This might surprise you. It probably will. But there's only one passage that I know of in the New Testament that sort of has someone praying for the salvation of someone else. Did you know that? Now, it's good to pray for relative salvation and co-worker salvation and all that. But the only place I know of that comes close to that in the New Testament is Romans chapter 10, where Paul says, my heart's desire and prayer for Israel is this, that they might be saved. That's it. In the prayers in the New Testament, you don't have any of that. Save so-and-so, any of that. Jesus says here, pray and pray about evangelism. But notice how you're praying about evangelism. You're not praying about the people to be saved. You're praying about people to go and give the gospel. So we ought to pray. Lord, motivate us to overcome our faint heartedness because we have compassion on people like you did so that we will go and actually do this. Page 18, Jesus' mission in coming to earth to redeem a people for his very own, required that he proclaim the truth to those who need it. The Bible quotes Jesus saying this in Luke chapter 4. He went to Nazareth where he had been brought up, and on the Sabbath day he went into the synagogue as was his custom. He stood up to read, and the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was handed, handed to him. Unrolling it, he found the place where it is written. Let me stop there. So this is the way it went in synagogues. If you were a person of prominence uh, or some, of some reputation, you go into a synagogue, you have something to say. You were people were allowed to do that. Jesus comes in, he's going to say something. He apparently asks for the he asks for the uh, scroll of the prophet Isaiah, and then the Bible tells us, unrolling it, he found the place where it is written. Okay, unrolling it, he found the place. Now, Isaiah has 66 chapters in it. And you don't have chapters and verses. You don't have the thumb index on the scroll. You unroll this thing and you have to find it. And Jesus finds a place in chapter 61 with no chapters and no verses where it says, The Spirit of the Lord is on me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners and recovery of sight for the blind, to set the oppressed free, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Now notice those categories where Jesus says, I have come to proclaim the gospel, proclaim the good news. The spiritually bankrupt. Now, I say, he says, he says there, to the poor. But this is similar to Matthew chapter 5 in the Sermon on the Mount where Jesus gives the Beatitudes. Blessed are they, blessed are those, right? The very first of the blessings is blessed are the poor in, anybody remember? Poor in spirit. I mean, it's not that he's coming only to preach good news to people who are materially impoverished. And as a matter of fact, in his ministry, he didn't do that either, did he? He preached the gospel to wealthy people as well. So that's why I say he's talking about those who are poor in spirit, spiritually bankrupt, bound in sin, blind by sin, oppressed in their sin. I, Jesus, have come to proclaim the gospel to people in those categories. So again, we've got to ask ourselves, so what do I think about people in those categories? When we see people as they are, spiritually bankrupt, bound, blind, oppressed, we're seeing them as Jesus did, and, and it should mot- motivate as Jesus was to proclaim, that is, give the gospel. So you have Jesus' example, but then you also have the example of the Apostle Paul. The Apostle Paul goes into Athens, Greece, philosophical capital of the world at the time, and the great philosophers up to this time of Socrates and Aristotle and Plato and others, the home of those philosophers, he goes there. And he was likewise moved, though, to action when he saw the spiritual condition of the city of Athens. Here's what the Bible says. While Paul was in Athens, he was greatly distressed to see that the city was full of idols. So he reasoned in the synagogue with both Jews and God-fearing Greeks, as well as in the marketplace day by day with those who happened to be there. All right, now see how that's put together. What it says about what Paul saw, how Paul was affected, and in turn, what Paul did. It says that Paul was in Athens and he was greatly distressed because he saw the city full of idols. Now, when you read the Bible, what you should do is you should try to equate what you read then and there with our circumstances here and now. We should always do that. So what's what's the equivalent? What's that look like to us? A city full of idols. Now, in the case of Athens, you had physical idols all over the city. And so he's distressed at these physical idols. You haven't been to too many cities, most of us haven't, where you have, they're full of physical idols. I've been to India, and believe me, there are physical idols all over the place. So there's certainly places like that, but around here we don't have many of those. We don't have many physical idols. What do we have? We well, have all kinds of heart idols everywhere, don't we? So to equate where we are with what where Paul was, the idea is for us to look around and say, what is our city full of? What is our nation full of? What's our culture full of? What are the idolatries in our place and time? he saw the city full of idols and it says he was greatly distressed. And I say in your notes there that the Greek word that's translated distressed is a Greek word from which we get our English word paroxysm. A seizure. Paul had a visceral reaction and convulsed at what he saw. So he saw the idols. He's affected intensely by what he saw. But he didn't leave it at that because it says, so he reasoned. So, because, because there are all these idols, because he sees what people are doing, he's affected by it internally. But externally, he does something about it. So he reasoned. In the synagogue, with Jews and God-fearing Greeks, God-fearing Greeks are Gentiles who frequent the, the synagogue. They practice Jewish customs. In Acts chapter 10, Cornelius was one of these. Cornelius, to whose house... Peter was told to go and give the gospel, and he did, and Cornelius and his house were converted. Some of you remember that, but it says that Cornelius was a God-fearer. And what that means is he's a Gentile who practices Judaism. So in the synagogue, you had Jews, but you also had Gentiles who were practicing Judaism. That's the God-fearing Greeks. But what about your run-of-the-mill Gentiles (laughs) in Athens? I mean, there's the synagogue, there's the Jews and the people who are trying to be Jews. But then notice it goes on to say, as well as in the marketplace. Day by day with those who happen to be there. He's going to Jews and Gentiles. Everybody needs the same message. Synagogue, marketplace. So I say here, Paul was spiritually aware so that he saw the idolatry for what it was. A chasing after God replacements. So if you want to identify the idolatry that's going on around you, you need to understand what idolatry is. It's replacing God. God replacements. Anything or anyone that's replacing God is an idol. Anything or anyone that captures the heart of people so that they give themselves to that, so that they pursue that, so, success, money, the American dream, looks, fashion. You can just go, you can make a, a list that goes on and on and on, can you not? That captures people's hearts, around which they organize their lives, replacing God. So he was distressed. But he was only distressed because he was first spiritually aware. If you're not somebody who's spiritually aware, if you're not somebody who's spiritually attuned, you won't see any of that. It'll all feel just fine to you because you're part of it. The only people who are going to go, man, look at what's going on, are the people who are attuned to Jesus. And they see the difference. Paul was like that. He saw the difference. So his heart was moved intensely. I said that word translated distressed is the one we get paroxysm, a seizure from. But friends, this is the air we breathe. This is the ocean in which we swim. This is the world we live in with idols of various forms that replace God. As a result, our hearts should be broken on a regular basis when we see things are not the way they're supposed to be. So I'm using all that you know, imagery of this is the air we breathe and this is the we swim. But I'm just trying to give you the idea, man. You're surrounded by it all the time. On TV, at work, everywhere. The city is full of idols. God replacements. We should be moved by that. Solomon summarized life lived foolishly, not for its intended purpose. In the book of Ecclesiastes, he called it chasing after the wind. People live searching for someone or something to replace God and just, in effect, chase their tails. People are like a hamster on a wheel. A lot of activity going nowhere. or going nowhere that means anything. People go through life just chasing the wind and life for them is like a vapor and they try to grab onto it and it goes through their fingers. That's the image that Solomon uses In the book of Ecclesiastes, you try to grab it and you can't, of course. That's the way the majority of people are living their lives. And these are the people to whom we're called to take the good news of Jesus. But as I've said, top of page 19, the fact that people have made a mess of their lives is often the entry point that God uses for us to be able to bring in the good news. There are times where a person just finally hits bottom and they say, I get it, it's messed up, it's not supposed to work this way, I'm not using my life as intended, my body is ravaged with alcohol, okay, I get it. Or I've acquired some sexually transmitted disease, okay, I get it. Now, of course, not everybody does that. I'm not even saying most people do. Sometimes God uses that for somebody to say, I get it, I'm going the wrong way, I'm not using life as intended. But most people we deal with don't have some overt, obvious consequence of their rejection of Christ, but instead the consequences are internal, an empty heart with no direction. So you just see, friends, that you got both types. you got the person with the very obvious, life has gone wrong, completely wrong. And for just, just about everybody here, given the way our culture is descending, and how people are desperately looking for God replacements. Just about everybody here has about three degrees and no more than three degrees of separation from somebody who's like that. It doesn't even take three degrees for me. It's in my own family. My own immediate family with my with my brothers. And I've talked to enough of you to know you've got a cousin, you've got a niece, you've got a nephew, you've got a son or a daughter, you've got... It's the kind of world we're, we're living in. So you got people like that and you're getting more and more people like that. But you got that. But you also have the people who don't have some obvious overt consequence. Instead, the consequences are internal. An empty heart with no direction. Often a lonely heart with no direction. <laughs> a lonely heart with people around. Lots of people around, lots of laughter, lonely inside, and that mess is sometimes the thing God uses to allow us to enter their world. Loneliness with people around. Uh, That great theologian, Billy Joel, and the piano man. And he says the people gathered at the bar, who gather at the bar to hear him play on a weekly basis, they're, I'm quoting, they're sharing a drink they call loneliness, but it's better than drinking alone. It's quite a line. Sharing a drink they call loneliness, but that's better than drinking alone. But they're still lonely. Uh, this is not a political statement. It's just uh, a guy, a senator from Nebraska, Ben Sass. You have to really follow politics to know who that is. He's kind of a young guy, kind of a rising star. He's probably going to run for president someday. And, oh, by the way, he's a Christian guy too. And he's a church member at a church plant in a little storefront in a little town in Nebraska. But Ben Sass just last week released a book. And the book is about loneliness in America. And the effects that it's having on our society. And in that book, he quotes another author and a professor, Robert Putnam. And I have a book on my shelf about 20 years ago that Putnam wrote called Bowling Alone. Um, And he, he pointed out that people are still bowling, but they don't bowl in leagues anymore or not like they used to. They bowl by themselves. And his point was, there used to be all these sort of things that kept people together, bowling leagues and things like that, and you have fewer and fewer of those kinds of things. And now here we are 20 or so years later and Sass is writing about it and it's gotten worse. All right. Now, now, do you guys think that there's an opportunity for the good news of the gospel in that? Lonely heart, there's a God who loves you? And a Savior who died for you? Do you think Do you think there's a... Well, of course there is. But we've got to be able to see people for where they are. So we don't always deal with people who have this overt, obvious consequence, but sometimes it's an empty heart with no direction, a lonely heart with no direction. So, middle of page 19, in addition to the obvious consequences of sin, they're the covert internal consequences for the respectable person who shows up at work every day. Kids go to school. They're trying to save for them to go to college and so on. They haven't killed anybody. They they don't have a sexually transmitted disease, as far as you know. They're not alcoholics or drug abusers. They're not any of that. So where do they fit? How do we view them? And if we don't see them as God sees them, then we'll miss a huge segment of people who need to hear the good news of Jesus. So friends, please understand what I say here. Behind all of that facade, people are still living, in the words of Thoreau, quiet lives of desperation. You, Christian, me, Christian, we have to be able to see through the facade and not be enamored by the facade. Instead of seeing through it, we're often attracted to it. And then we get lured into pursuing the same empty road. But people are pursuing these quiet lives of desperation. There's a respectable facade, but these people are living off of the stolen capital of the biblical worldview. Sometimes uh, theologians call it the borrowed capital of the biblical worldview. I say it's stolen. Because what's happened is, those are happy screams, aren't they? Mm -hmm. So what happens is, uh, the world uses what God has made and given, not for the purpose for which he gave it. So they misappropriate it, they misdirect it. And so you get the people who look like everything's good. What they're doing is they're using the stuff that God gave them for their own ends. They're benefiting from that. But they're stealing it from God without acknowledging the God from whom they took it. Now, what, what do I mean? Last paragraph on page 19. Take marriage. It's interesting that even unbelievers, when it's time to get married, often want to get married in a church. And if they can't get married in the church, they still want to get married by a minister. Now, that's not always true. People get married by justice of the peace and all kinds of things. But it's very often true. I get calls for people just, you know, hey, can we get married in your church? Will you marry us? And I say yes. And I tell them what the process is to go through premarital counseling. Click. they'll just call some other minister who's looking to make a hundred bucks and he'll marry him, unfortunately, without any premarital counseling. But why do they, why a minister? Why a church? What's God got to do with it? Because they're living off of the stolen capital of the biblical worldview. After all, where did the whole idea of marriage involving God come from? came from a biblical worldview at the very beginning of your Bible, when God gave away the first bride, God performed the first wedding. People know that. They don't live for the God who did that, but they like to every now and then dip into his pockets, so to speak, and lift off of the capital of the worldview that he has given us, including marvelous gifts like marriage, children, and families. These are all things that were instituted by God, that people who reject God, who don't think about God, Still engage in. And so how are we to see that person? This is the person who lives in your neighborhood, who is. Lives in your neighborhood, who is doing well. This is the this is the son or daughter of yours. To bring it really home. Where if somebody asks you, how's Johnny doing? And you go doing really well, has a good job, graduated from such and such. And you go down the list of all that stuff now. Those are all great things. And then you add on the end, you know, but he's not doing spiritually so good. And let me just say very straight, if if people are not doing well spiritually, they're not doing well, no matter where they graduated from, no matter what kind of job they have. but it looks like it because we don't see through it. And we don't see that people are stealing the capital of the biblical worldview and appropriating it for themselves. So that's how we see that. That's how we see that person then. That person is appropriating what God has given. He's using it for his or her own end. I'll just finish with this. And because we're living in part off of the same worldview, It gives common ground that can bridge the gap between believer and unbeliever, since both have in common family matters, spouses, children. Now, do you see what I'm saying there? I'm saying that they're stealing it. We're living it, presumably, for God and his purposes. But we both have something in common. Families, children, all of that. Now, the fact that they're dipping into our worldview actually offers us common ground. To now bridge the gap between us and them. This gives us opportunity to talk to them about marriage. About raising kids. About all the issues that go with that. But do it from a radically different perspective. It's one of the major ways that we are able then to make contact with people in the world. So that we don't have just us and them, these two parallel worlds, going our own way. Now, we'll pick up on that then next week. Bring those notes back with you, if you would. Let's pray and ask God to help us. And, men, if you can, uh, some of you guys stick around. Pastor Larry is back here. He can help us. And then Melissa's going to come, right? And tell us where st- the stacks go. All right, let's pray. Father, thank you for tonight and the subject matter of the gospel and it as the solution to the human problem. The human problem is sin. Sin has all of its far-reaching effects. We've all experienced it to some degree, some more than others, but all of us come into this world with exactly the same nature, a nature that is separated from you, even hostile toward you, and but for the grace of God, so go we as we look at our culture and the people in it. So, Lord, help us as your evangelists, as your ambassadors, to be people who see through biblical eyes so that we see people as they are, so that we see people as Jesus did, and then seeing clearly are motivated as the great apostle was, as our Lord was, to give the good news. Help us to do that this week. Bring us back together this Sunday, this Lord's Day. We pray in the name of Jesus. Amen.